Hello and welcome to the 2020 Writers' Trust Awards, Career Honors Edition. In lieu of in-person celebrations, this year the Writers' Trust is going digital to award more than $300,000 to Canadian writers. In this series of interviews, prize jurors from each of the Writers' Trust Career Awards will be chatting with recipients about their lives as writers, their work, and what's next for each of them. My name is Kai Kello. And this year, I served on the Latner Writers' Trust Poetry Prize Jury, alongside poets Marilyn Zumont and Susan Glickman. I am proud to present this unique award, which celebrates one poet's entire body of work. As much as this $25,000 prize is in recognition of past work, it is equally symbolic of our anticipation for work to come. Finally, I would like to thank the Latner Family Foundation for both creating and funding this prize, and for their commitment to advancing and celebrating remarkable voices in Canadian poetry. This year's winner has animated larger-than-life figures such as Geronimo, Grey Owl, and Norval Morisot, while at the same time engaging profoundly with the daily life of Indigenous people. His language is lucid and understated. The spirit of metaphor infuses his work with a larger understanding of the relationship of individuals, to the time and place they inhabit. His most recent collection demonstrates a poetic struggle with the English language and the colonial instruments which came with it. With each successive book, this poet has demonstrated increasing range, expertise, grace, consolidating his claim to that place. It is my great pleasure to announce the winner of the 2020 Latin Writers' Trust Poetry Prize, Armand Garnett Rufo. He was born and raised in Chapleau, Northern Ontario, and draws on his Ojibwe heritage for his work. He is the author of five books of poetry, including Grey Owl, The Mystery of Archie Bellany, The Thunderbird Poems, and Treaty Number, for which he was a Governor General's Literary Award finalist. He is also the author of the creative biography, Norva Morisot, Man Changing into Thunderbird, which was also a finalist for the Governor General's Literary Awards, and the feature film, A Windigo Tale, winner of Best Picture at the 35th American Indian Film Festival. Rufo is the recipient of a Life Membership Award from the League of Canadian Poets and the inaugural Mayor's Arts Award from the City of Kingston. Currently a professor in English at Queen's University, he lives in Kingston, and Armand is here with us today. Welcome, Armand. It's very nice to be here talking with you. Likewise, Anine. Hello. It's, it's a real pleasure and a real honor to uh, to receive this award. So, as one of the um, jury members for the 2020 Latner Poetry Prize, um, one of the requirements for for us was that we read works from different periods of an artist's writing life. So, of your works, we read "Opening in the Sky," "The Thunderbird Poems." and treaty number. And it was remarkable to see the developing range of concerns in your work and to see the style mature. And this is where I would like to begin. In your early book, Opening in the Sky, which was published in 1994, the voice is lyric and is very much socially engaged. At that time, who were you reading and how were you thinking about your work? I'm curious because your work has changed so much over the past 25 years. Well, um, for Opening in the Sky, um, 
a lot of those poems were actually written before, well before the um, the book actually was assembled. Some of them were written during early 90s, but um, but a lot of them were written in the 80s. Um, I had studied, I guess I have to go back and say I had studied, I had taken a general degree um, after leaving Northern Ontario. I, I traveled to Toronto and went to York for a couple of years. And while I was there, I encountered um, Lee, um, um, what was his name now? Um, uh, Mandel. Um, he was a poet himself. And he, he had a, he had a course on Canadian poets. I was not in the English, English department. So I, but I took his course and he introduced the class to, um, all the, you know, main poets, Canadian poets of the time, the ones who were, you know, the big names like Leonard Cohen and, uh, mm-hmm. Al Purdy and, um, course Michael Andachi and mm-hmm. Margaret Atwood so I was reading those people at, the, at that time so that would have been uh, uh, like a, I'm a child of the 70s so that would have been the late 70s and then I left and and then in, I moved to Ottawa to work for native organizations and that's when I started seeing some indigenous writer, writing not a lot because we're talking now 79 into 1980 and then at that time I started um, engaging with the local scene the tree the tree reading series I don't know if you're familiar with that but it's it's still running yeah it's ongoing yeah it's ongoing and it started in 1980 I believe so I had arrived there and I started attending these um, these readings and and seeing a younger generation but also you know that that generation as well. Um, there were uh, there were readings uh, by Andachi. I remember at Ottawa U I, that I attended. Um, Margaret Atwood. Um, so so I was reading you know the general Canadian literature. Some newer writers. Very very few. Well, at that time, literally not, no Indigenous writers um, you know were reading that I knew of. Then around, um, so that's the 80s, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I started reading also broadly myself because, you know, I became interested in, in books, and I and I read, uh, for example, I, I really got into Pablo Neruda for a while. Okay. Um, um, uh, what was his name? Hans Magnus Enzenberger. I remember he wrote a book called The Sinking of the Titanic that really caught my interest. So I was reading very widely um paul uh what was his name Dur- paul durkin the poet uh, the uh, british poet mm-hmm. um so some international writers i was going to these local readings and so that's where a lot of those poems and then i and because you know i come from northern ontario i was exploring my own ing- indigenous ojibwe heritage so a lot of those poems were coming out of that period and um, with those influences and it wasn't only and it was only until i got like in 89 then i got uh, a scholarship to the bam center and that's when i really you know started writing seriously um under the uh, you know under the guidance of adele wiseman who was running the program and that's when i started reading 
more indigenous writers. I would just go to the library and they had quite a you know good library of writing there and and um, and then it, everything really changed when I I got hired. So it, I think it was '89. I ended up in Oklahoma because there was this conference called Returning the Gift, and it brought indigenous poets and writers from across North America to Oklahoma. And suddenly, I'm introduced to all these, uh, you know, uh, Joy Harjo, Simon Ortiz, um, Leslie Marmon Silco, you know, mm-hmm. the whole, a whole range of, and Scott Mamaday, everything opens up for me. And, and at that time, I'm, 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 um, I start working then for the Anauquin Center in, in British Columbia. And then I'd start meeting, you know, Jeanette Armstrong, Lee Maracle, all these Canadian Indigenous writers who are also working. So there's not a, you know, there's not a lot going on in the country at that time in terms of, you know, poetry and writing that's getting, you know, published mainstream, but I'm finding it by then. So that book comes out of then that early work that, you know, the Canadian kind of stuff I'm reading, the general, you know, literature by the, you know, like I said, the, the you know, the, the mainstream poets. And then it's starting to get influenced by the uh, Indigenous writers I'm reading. So that leads me to, to, to another question, which is, I'm always interested um, in what people experienced when they entered the publishing landscape. So what kind of experience did you have um, when you first started publishing? Um, what kind of experience did you have getting your work published? Um, beyond that, I guess, how was it received and engaged with by reviewers? Yeah, um, that's a very good question because, so like I said, you know, I'm, I just, I start publishing a few things in the 80s and there's not much um, there aren't a lot of places that are actually publishing Indigenous writing. I mean, mm-hmm. um, one of the very first places that I got published was in a, a journal called Northward Journal, published by John Flood out of uh, it was Penumbra Press, I believe. And so that was that was really, you know, great for me. Suddenly, I see my work in print, and that's like I don't know, eighty early eighties. And then, uh, then um, I believe Arc, Arc Poetry yeah. published me. But it's few and far between at that period. It's only until things really change late 80s because of Thompson Highway getting so much success with his plays and then opening the door for other playwrights. And I'm also writing plays at that time as well. Mm. So there's... So there's a whole kind of scene going on in Toronto. I'm not that active, you know, writing plays because I'm not part of the, you know, I'm, I'm not living in Toronto, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was really Native Earth that's really running, Native Earth Productions really running with the, these plays and producing them. But Thompson's success has huge ripples for everyone. Suddenly, publishers are taking notice, and I think around 90 as well, Tom, well, Tom King has moved to Canada from the States and I think he's teaching at Lethbridge and he publishes a collection of, of um, an anthology, short of anthology of, uh, of uh, indigenous fiction. And I, and that, and that 
occurs because of, I believe, because of Thompson's success. Publishers are starting to get interest. And so early 90s, then, you know, there's more, you know, there's more chances of publication. The new, I get published in the New Quarterly, for example, the Windsor mm-hmm. Review. That, those, as far as reviews, I don't think, I don't know if I ever got a review. I, I don't think people knew what to make of it, you know, because mm-hmm. it was different. It was, it was, it was, um, it wasn't celebrating, uh, you know, the the pioneer spirit. It, you know, the 70s was such a period of national, you know, the 1967 Expo, then the writing of the 70s, you know, Atwood with survival and all that stuff. Well, that's still the, the huge wave that's, that's, you know, passing through Canadian literature. And, you know, you have a group of writers um, who aren't doing that, so, mm-hmm. and I also mentioned while I was in Ottawa, because we weren't getting published, we started literally publishing ourselves. Um, I, I was with a group, we formed a small group called Wino, you know, a bit of, a bit of irony there. Yeah. Indigenous writing, writing group. And we published, uh, one of the, um, one of the writers in the group named Ann Aiko. She was working in the government and she, Finance the publication of, of a little publication that we we put out. Um, so you know, um, I, I'm working for well, I'm attending university at Ottawa U, but I'm also working for Native organizations at the time. And you know, the newspapers um, are, are these Indigenous journals. We're publishing, starting to publish poets and and story writing. And so, yeah, that. Um, that kind of thing is, is going on. And also, um, I should mention, um, Datus Press gets established mm-hmm. in the 80s, and um, it publishes in 89, I believe, it publishes a, a collection called Seventh Generation Contemporary Native Writing. Okay. So, you know, again, we're, we're, Native people are, 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 are taking, you know, control of our own writing and, and publishing ourselves because again there's not a lot I mean it's changing but there's not a lot of uh, opportunity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um, so yeah so and then by 2000 then everything's you know uh, it's everything's wide open I mean Oxford publishes uh, its um, anthology of Canadian Native Literature in English. I think that's in 1990. So, um, yeah, so everything uh, everything opens wide up. You're, you're, um, I love that uh, discussion of how um, Native writers had to take uh, publishing into their own hands and, and create and represent their own work and develop um, their own um, literary community. Um, mm-hmm. I, I love that exercise of that. I love that agency and um, that creating uh, of a of a of a distinct space for native writing. Um, yeah, you know that was important because, like I said, well, actually, the Oxford anthology came out in '92. Um, up until that time. Uh, it was really under the wire. I mean, there were a few people making an effort to publish Indigenous writing. I believe um, 
uh, what was her name? She, um, there was a, there was an anthology that came out a few years. Like it had actually come out earlier, um, but you know those. It was uh, Marilyn Marilyn Bowering. She published a, mm-hmm. a, a collection called Many Voices as early as 1977, and there were a few Indigenous writers in it, but it, you know it was a real mix um, of of different kinds of you know different different voices, non-Indigenous and Indigenous, but. Like I say, it was few and far between, and it's only you know with with the success of of um, uh, Thompson um, that other publishers, you know, uh, non-indigenous publishers really start taking notice. But but for poetry, it's still you know it's still under the wire, and uh, and um, it's early '90s things really start to change. You know, mm. um, for example. Um, well, Marilyn Dumont herself publishes yeah. a really good Brown Girl. Um, Louise Half publishes Bare Bones and Feathers, um, and then in fiction, Richard Wagamese publishes Keeper and Me in '94. It all starts really happening in the early '90s, and then um, you know, then Greg Schofield comes along. Um, it's you know, so we're kind of like the second wave after that earlier first right. wave. Of Indigenous writing of the 60s and 70s that was mostly um, like Maria Campbell's Half Breed in 73, you know, mostly a memoir and and um, and you know, kind of oral stories. You've also published uh, not just poetry, but um, you wrote a biography of Norval Morrison. Um, mm-hmm. But you, in fact, you wrote two works that engage with the life and painting of Norval Morrison. So one poetry and one prose and what were um i'm curious what were some of the the things that one form allowed you to do that another form didn't yeah well you know prose you know as you as you know and in your own work the poem really was working with the the word and and prose is the sentence and although you know obviously some poetry you know my poetry included works with the sentence but but you know i wanted with the um with the prose i really wanted to tell his story you know a narrative uh uh we call it kind of like a the bajamo and kind of an uh in in ojibwe it's it's a, it's an, a long narrative an everyday story his life in general and i was also infusing it um with uh, with another kind of story, which we call Odisokan, which is kind of these mythic stories, because I, these sacred stories, I, because his life in a sense was mythic, as as his as his arc was, because he he didn't see, he didn't differentiate between the mythic world and the everyday world. So I wanted to kind of blend those two kinds of of storytelling traditions together. So that was the prose. Um, and then in the, in the poetry, what happened there is that while I was writing the uh, the uh, prose, I would start writing these poems. And the poems for me were kind of these elliptic, you know, elliptical kind of um, moments, if I can use that word. Because for me, poetry has this kind of compression, eh? And, it, you know, you don't have to spell everything out and it's kind of holding this energy i like to like to say and so the the poems then 
were kind of these moments where I could really kind of compress an event and, and compress time and not be tied to, you know, this happened and then that happened, you know, kind of this linear event. Because poetry can kind of move all through time. It just, you know, it, that's the mm-hmm. wonderful thing about poetry. It's not tied to the linear time. So yeah. that's what, that's why, and that's why I started writing, the, I, I don't know why I started writing the poems, but I could. I found out I could do this with the poems. And what happened, interestingly enough, is I intended, when the prose book came out, there are about eight or, I don't know, half a dozen or so poems in there, scattered throughout, and I thought that's all I would do in terms of the poetry, but the poems kept coming. You know, I was wrapping up the, the book, and the poems just started coming, kept coming and coming. And so what happened was, I, I think I wrote 53 or so, something like this. And I wanted an even number, but I couldn't do it. And then suddenly just stopped. <laughs> I was so frustrated. I'd go for walks and think, oh, I could get a couple more poems, make it even 55, whatever. I couldn't do it. So I just start with the end. They had just come and they had left. And that's how poetry, oh. I think, works. Wow, yeah, yeah. I'm actually reading the um, the biography now. We okay. read the book of poetry for the prize, and then I was um, I just found uh, Morrisville's life to be so extraordinary and um, uh, such achievement and such uh, sort of so many devastating episodes as well that um, it was really and and he seemed to be such a, like a larger than life magnetic character with this incredible talent. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was, you know, like I said, when I, I say in the introduction, when I walked in, he said, what, you know, what took you so long? (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, um, he, he had this way of just kind of taking one in, you know, taking you into his experience. And, uh, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's why I tried in the prose book to, to break from, what might we might call traditional kind of storytelling and realism, you know, because the paintings are mythic and that's, like I say, that's how he saw his life. Mm-hmm. I'd like to go back to, to poetry for one, one final question. Um, your most recent book of poetry is uh, Treaty Number. And it it features several poems that function almost as, as pillars of the work in which treaties are presented with, uh, they kind of punctuate the work um, at intervals, in which treaties are presented with the language turned backward. Um, mm-hmm. And as a reader, um, my experience of those poems was, you know, it was pretty visceral and immediate. And, you know, the things that came to mind as I was reading through the poems was, um, perhaps duplicity, um, incomprehensibility, encoded meanings, even noise. And would you be able to tell me about how you arrived at that um, uh, formal decision to turn the text backward? Well, uh, you're right on um, in, in, in noting that, uh, you know, this element, there's all those elements, duplicity, incomprehensibility, coded meanings, because... You know, I had read, I was reading the treaties at the time, and, um, you know, I'm very interested in history. 
Um, and, you know, I'm constantly reading about history, reading about Indigenous uh, encounters um, with uh, with the colonizer right at, the, you know, in both in the 18th century, 19th century. And it occurred to me that, that these treaties were really intended to, you know, um, really intended just to rob indigenous peoples of the land and and get them off the land and get them you know put us on reserves and and forget about us you know out of sight out of mind and um and how did that occur well you know it wasn't by accident you know it wasn't we know that now i mean anybody who knows a little bit about canadian history understands that and so when you when i saw these treaties and i was just trying to read them you know I consider myself fairly educated. I could not understand them. I'm trying to, you know, and so I'm thinking, well, what would the people at the time, you know, some of the indigenous people certainly read English, but if I can't understand them, they wouldn't understand them. And then there's all those people who didn't understand English, who, you know, and then had translators. There's one, there's a poem in the book I call, I think, The Poet. It's about a translator who just really wants to, get out of there and he's trying to translate the stuff but they won't even tell him what it means so so um so using that i thought well first i i i thought i would just blank you know i've seen you know um blank out the the words but i thought no no that's too that's you know they saw the words so the words weren't just blacked out they actually saw the words but what did they see and what did they comprehend? Well, you know, it, it was it was made to be opaque. It was made to to um, to obfuscate and to and to and to render you know those signing it disempower them to render them powerless. So that's what I was trying to get at there. And uh, so I'm really happy that you saw that and read that into the into the piece. Oh yeah, I mean it's 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 incredible. It's it's almost like the language is being turned against you, um, yeah. because it's it's it, as you're trying to read it, it's sort of making sense, but then it's turning against or away from you. It's really powerful. For sure, and language is can be a weapon. Of course, we know that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, and that's exactly how it was used. And and um, so I mean, you know, we honor the treaties because that's in some cases that's all we have left. But the, there's no doubt the treaties were used against us. Well, um, yes, yeah, thank you for that answer. And overall, thank you for uh, Armand for producing a body of work that um, continues to challenge our relationships with our history, with ourselves, with this land, and with one another. All of us are very grateful for your thinking and your artistry. We're thrilled to see you receive this prize. And we are very hopeful that your future will bring um, sustained creativity. And for any listeners, you can listen and watch the other interviews with this year's Writers Trust Career Prize winners on SoundCloud at Writers Trust or on YouTube at Writers Trust of Canada. On YouTube, you can also watch the Writers Trust Awards, Emerging Writers Edition and Books of the Year Edition, Celebrating the Best in Canadian Literature, We thank you for joining us today, and thank you, and congratulations, Armand. Oh, Miigwech. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed uh, our chat, Kai. Take care. Mm -hmm.